Uh, what we are doing, and we're going to be jumping into God's Word now, and what we're doing is between now and October 9th, well, October 9th is when we're going to start a new sermon series, we've been talking about some of the great one another passages of the Bible. And really what my hope is, is that this will build, bringing us to a place of decision. Um, I want to really encourage you uh, to give serious thought, consideration, and prayer to, um, to being a part of a smaller group of Christians than this Sunday morning gathering that we enjoy together. This is good. This is biblical. This is needed. Uh, but this is not the fullness of what it is to live out the Christian life, to come and take in a worship service. I want you to think with me just a little bit about how our God brought us into relationship with Him. Uh, God did not just give us information from afar. He came to us physically, um, in, in the flesh, as it were. Jesus came down from heaven, became like one of us. He is the God who said in the Old Testament, I am your God, you will be my people, and I will live amongst you. And he is the God who has promised that eternally he is making a home for us even now and that we will go and be with him. He is not an impersonal, distant God. He is not a God who shoots us an email. He is a God who comes to us and is personally with us, even to the point where if you're a believer today, you know, sometimes we look at the things that Jesus did during the days of his earthly ministry and we think, wow, it would have been better to be present and witness that than what I currently am experiencing. But do you know that what you have is superior to what the disciples had? They witnessed Jesus in action. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. That is not less. That is more. That is how deeply committed our God is to being in relationship with you, that the, through the Holy Spirit, he actually inhabits his people. We are so completely, indissolubly united with him that there is not a cat's whisker of separation between you and your God. This is an amazing thing. And then when we see that that's the MO, that's the modus operandi of our God, that's how he operates in the world and among his people, how scandalous it is, it, how scandalous it is then for his people to then pursue the Christian life in isolation from one another, as though we're somehow resembling our God, the God who comes to us, the God who actually lives within us, the God who says, I'm your God, you are my people, I will be with you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then we say to one another, bula bula, <laughs> you go your way, I'll go mine. Is that an English word? I don't know. This is the struggle when I leave my script. <laughs> it stops sounding like English. But this is, a, this is really what I want to encourage you towards. Guys, we are not a book club here at State Road Advent Christian Church. I say that a lot. We don't just get together week after week and talk about our favorite book. The Bible as a document is meant to be lived. It is meant to be lived, and when it is lived, it's the pathway, I believe, not only to... Um, all kinds of wonderful adventures and blessings. I believe it's the path to happiness. 
I really do believe it. And I think we're fighting for our function and power as a church, our function and power as individual Christians, and we're also fighting for our happiness when we pursue the difficult commands in the Bible. And let's square it. Let's be square about this. The one another commands are challenging. They are difficult. And this morning, I want to return. We've, we've spent this in other seasons as we've led up to small group season. We've talked about this passage, and it's really hard to avoid if we're talking about the great one another passages of the Bible. Uh, it's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to spend a little time kind of unpacking it. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Where my parents live, my parents have a camp on Lake Champlain, and if you're familiar with Lake Champlain, it's shaped kind of like a tadpole. It's really big in the north end of the lake. And then it tapers down to a little thin, narrow tadpole's tail in the south. And a funny thing happens in that lake. I've, I've spent years and years and years living, up, living, growing up alongside of that lake. When there is a strong north wind, all those miles of water to the north, up in the north it's several miles wide. When there's a strong north wind, it pushes all that water down into that narrow tadpole's tail. And in a matter of, a short matter of just minutes, the lake can rise four feet in the south end of that lake. I've seen it happen. I've had a boat I left on the shore go out into the lake (laughs) because the lake rose so quickly and unexpectedly that it took it right away. One of my favorite things to do, though, is when there is a strong north wind and the white caps are coming and the waves are are breaking and all, all that water is pushing into the south end of the lake, I like to take a rowboat we keep there at the house and paddle north into those waves and wind. And the reason I like that is because it's a test to see how far I can get. But when I get totally tired, all I have to do is just turn that around and it pushes me right home. But what I found is I'll get way out there and I'm pulling on those oars. I am pulling and pulling and pulling. And I will get to the point where that boat is not going anywhere For every little bit I go forward, the wave just slams the aluminum hull and pushes me right back. And I'm doing everything I can to hold my position. Now, the reason why I tell you that story, we talk about rowboats and winds and currents, is because in a very real way, this is symbolic of the Christian life to which we've all been called. You have been called, fellow Christian, to a life of intentional striving. Somebody has to say it, and we have to know it and understand it. You've been called to a life that is not aimless, that's not hit or miss. It requires intentionality and striving to live and to prosper as a Christian. Living for Jesus in the midst of this fallen world means that all of your movement, every single pull on the oars towards Christ and Christ's likeness, is being opposed and opposed strongly by a powerful, ruinous current that is running in the opposite direction. Even now, right now, the prevailing currents of the culture, the goodwill and opinion of the communities in which we live, 
and also your own sin nature is pulling strongly at your heart and your mind. There is a strong downward pull to these days, and we're all living in it. And it's just like paddling against the wind. The minute you stop striving against the current, it pulls you backwards, and it pulls you away from where you want to go. Now, this is important to have in mind as we dive into the Word this morning, because our text for this morning, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, sits squarely in the midst of a larger block of Scripture, which is positively dripping with concern that some people will cease striving and thereby be pulled backwards and away from Christ. The verses that surround our text for this morning call believers to hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering. Verses 26 through 31 warn believers not to be enticed away from their hope by the allure of sin. And verses 32 through 38 warn not to let go of their hope because of suffering that they experience. So in other words, it's saying... Some people might be tempted to let go of the hope of the gospel because of a carrot. They've been enticed away by something else. Others will be tempted away because of a stick. They will just get beaten away from it or something like that. And so Paul sandwiches the, our passage for this morning into the, be, with these two concerns. And the author uses language like hold fast, draw near, Do not throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. And the author closes this section by warning that those who shrink back, either because of the carrot of sin or the stick of suffering, will be swept away to eternal destruction. Now, I want to be very clear on this point. I think it's very important, very critical, that I don't believe that anyone who has truly passed from death to life can ever lose their salvation. That's my conviction based on my sincere study of the Word of God. I don't believe that anyone who has ever truly received the gift of salvation can then ever lose it. I don't think my salvation had anything to do with me at the beginning, and I don't think I have anything to do with maintaining it. We are saved because of what Christ did, not through any striving on our part. But I just said, you've been called to a life of striving and that those who don't strive can be pulled away. Am I speaking in a circular way or speaking out of both sides of my mouth? You're smart people, you're intellectual people, and I'm sure some of you are thinking, Josh, which is it? (laughs) I want to be very clear. This is not a small point. It's a very important part. We need to be very clear that we are saved by justification, we are justified through what Jesus did for us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is the gospel news. But we need to also be clear that when a person has truly embraced the gospel in a saving way, that that will find expression in a life of obedience and a life of striving. I think the evidence of a true saving faith is that we strive. You cannot, through striving, become saved, but somebody who has been saved will strive. I don't know if that's too mealy-mouthed and out of both sides of my mouth for you, but I believe that that's true. One of the evidences that you have passed from death to life is that in the midst of this fallen world, you kick and swim and fight against the current. 
that is always trying to pull us away. Paul spoke in precisely this way about the Christian life when he said this, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. God does not will for his people to run aimlessly or to fight like people who are just beating the air. And what is the opposite of a life marked by aimless flailing? Well, it's a life marked by intentional striving. Holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian life is not that we are perfect, but that we are actively, intentionally striving against the strong downward pull of these days. And sitting right there in the midst of all this talk of holding fast and enduring and warning against shrinking back and giving up, we find our text for this morning. I'm going to read it again. This is right in the middle of of the author's big concern that some will shrink away, they'll let go, and they'll drift off into the current. He writes this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I would submit to you that one of the major means of grace by which God intends for His people to be persevere to the end, one of the main ways you can kick and swim and row against the current is by getting together with a smaller group of Christians who will do just what these verses say. That you need this. Let me make a general observation about this passage first, which will demonstrate why I think this text should be linked in our minds with small group gatherings as opposed to larger, more impersonal worship gatherings such as this one. And then we'll be able to see why such gatherings are so essential for our perseverance in the faith. In my experience growing up in the church, this, these verses are the single most commonly cited scripture passage used to make the argument that Christians should go to church on Sunday morning. After all, it says, don't neglect meeting together. And I don't disagree with that interpretation exactly. A preacher would be correct, would be, would be correct to say that this passage is at the very least a command to gather for worship with your fellow Christians in a gathering just like this one. However, although I don't think it can mean less than that, it certainly does mean more than that. It says that we're commanded to consider one another, to stir one another up and encourage one another. And it's that phrase, one another, that cues us in to the fact that something is being described happening that does not happen in a gathering like this. It's describing something mutual. It's describing a circling of the chairs. It's describing everybody ministering to one another rather than gathering together to hear God's Word taught, like in what we're doing right now. 
So, there is a dynamic back and forth being described in these verses. Considering, stirring up, encouraging. This is not a command to be present, but to be engaged in the lives of other believers. I think we do something wrong to these verses when we boil it down to a command to be present. That is not what he is describing. This is a command to be much more than present. This is a command to be invested and engaged. The Greek word for consider means to make a study of something, or in this case, somebody. So we are to study one another, but to what end? Well, it says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And we could really ask, what is one without the other, right? Uh, Love and good works, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. They're just one of those combos. Chase and Sanborn, Lewis and Clark, love and good works. The Greek phrase paroxysmus, translated in my version as stir up, also rendered in other versions as spur on, provoke, or incite, is really a very unusual word choice because it describes the effect of irritation or being made uncomfortable. One of the ways this word is used in the Greek is to literally spur, like you would jab a spur into the side of a horse. That's why we use the word spur on. So it describes actually like, (laughs) people who are listening in their car on the radio probably just went off into the ditch. That's why I did that. But it means something like that. Like sometimes when we're together with other people, we feel spurred on. I got to tell you, I think one of the most pivotal, important moments in my personal story as a follower of Jesus came one day when I was at my work. I was living in California at the time. And uh, my pastor at my church, Tim Westcott, called me on the business line and said, Josh, I need to talk with you. And I said, okay. And uh, we had never talked before, (laughs) so I was very nervous. But he pulled up and came and talked to me, and he invited me to be part of a group he was going to lead through two years. He said, I want you to to pray about it, and if you feel like God's giving you the green light, I want you to agree to come and meet with me every week for two years in a group of guys. I eventually said yes. And over the course of those two years, God would speak to me in ways that he never had before. I had no idea that I needed that group, none whatsoever. In fact, if somebody had asked me on that day, do you need something like this? I would have said, no, but I want to encourage the pastor. I'll do it. (laughs) Probably would have said something dumb like that. I had, guys, God met me in the midst of that group in so many ways, and on so many occasions, it felt like being spurred. (laughs) Somebody would share some thought or some insight, or we'd read a bit in a book, or we'd memorize a scripture together, and guys, it hurt in a good way. (laughs) It hurt in a way where I was like, I can't continue as I am. None of that would have happened. I don't think I'd be a pastor today if God hadn't drawn me into that group. It was that critically important for me and for my development as a follower of Jesus. And I I think that when we're talking about these words, something happened in the midst of that smaller group where I was considered, where I was spurred on, where I was encouraged in ways that would never have happened if I had been content to limit my involvement with the body of Christ 
to taking in a Sunday message. Something different happens in the mutuality that's being described in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And it's powerfully important. One of the great tragedies of our day is that the situation is desperate, but God's people are not. And I think the main idea conveyed by these word choices that the author of Hebrews selects is that a loving confrontation where the state of a sleepy or apathetic or inactive or sinning or backsliding Christian is recognized, they don't slip through the cracks. Someone has been making a study of me. Maybe they saw, maybe Pastor Tim saw that Josh Tate had been paddling hard, pulling against the oars at one time, but now he's just settled out into a place where he's just drifting. I don't know what kind of inner conversations with the Lord brought him to call me. I don't have a clue. But I will say this I was not pulling at the oars on the day when he called me. <laughs> and I'm grateful that he did. God is calling us to strive, to be intentional about seeking out and placing ourselves in a setting where this sort of thing can happen, where we can be stirred up, spurred on. We can come away from a gathering resolved to not live a meaningless life where we just drift with the culture. This is the options that we have. Like We can row against the prevailing winds or we can just drift with them. And you can't hold your place. That's not the way this works. You don't hold your place when you stop striving against a current. You get pulled back. In the Bible, Jesus spoke to mega-gatherings, crowds of thousands, but most of the meat of the gospel accounts, the dialogue, the stories, the teaching moments, they take place when he was with his small group, the disciples. He poured himself into the disciples with greater generosity and intimacy than he did with the crowds. His interactions with those disciples reveal a deep, insightful understanding of who those men were, and his words and example to them looked very much like a loving confrontation sometimes, a stirring up and spurring on, and to follow his example in love and good works. The early church in Acts is described in chapters 2 and 5 as meeting for worship in the temple courts and also house to house. And this, mirror, this mirrors Jesus' strategy. They had large, impersonal gatherings of believers in spacious public places, and they had smaller groups that met in homes. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, which resulted in 3,000 being added to the church, was certainly not in someone's home. Neither was the Sermon on the Mount. But the foot washing in the upper room, that happened at small group. It's not that one is good but the other is better or anything like that. It's that both are needed for the church to win and make disciples. Both are needed for us to flourish as followers of Jesus. It's not just for a pastor to encourage you and spur you on from God's Word on Sunday morning. That's important, and I believe the preaching of God's Word is very important and encouraging in the life of a church. But something more than that, in addition to that, is implied here in the phrase, one another. 
I think the idea of an anonymous lone wolf Christian who comes together with other believers to listen to a message and sing songs of praise, but who lives out their faith the rest of their time in isolation, neither making a study of others nor allowing anyone to study them, neither knowing others deeply nor allowing others to be truly known, knowing themselves to be truly known. This would have been anathema to the spirit and structure of the early church that we find in the New Testament. I mean, really, find somebody in the Bible who is a Lone Ranger Christian. (laughs) Point them out to me. Somebody who flourished, that's not a cautionary tale. I'd love to look at it. There's one more word here that I want to point out. Besides the command to consider one another and stir up one another, we're also commanded in verse 25 to encourage one another. We spent a whole Sunday on this a couple weeks ago. I won't spend a whole bunch of time here, but in the original word, Greek, this word meant to call to one side or to render aid. So we do not just gather together to spur one another on, but also to encourage one another. And again, both of these ideas bring to my mind the idea of striving. Love and good, good works is sometimes a thankly, thankless, costly, and deeply sacrificial way of living. And one of the most encouraging things we can do as believers is to help shoulder one another's burdens and pray for one another to encourage one another in the pursuit of good things. I'm sure that many burdens go unshared and prayer requests go unmentioned because this is just too large and impersonal a gathering to unburden ourselves of that. You need a smaller group to share the difficult things and what you need prayer for. And so I'm really excited about small groups flourishing because of all the things that flourish in the midst of that, the burdens that are shared, the people who are encouraged, prayer requests and all of that. But let's bring this back to the idea of striving for a moment. It says that we are to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. And probably the reason it says all the more as you see the day drawing near, that day, by the way, is the return of Jesus. That's the day that's being referred to there. And we do believe God when he says in his word that Jesus is coming back. And he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I think one of the reasons why he says that this is especially important not to forsake meeting together in this way, all the more as you see the day drawing near, is because the end of the days in this age are going to be a time of difficulty and evil and temptation when we need each other more and more. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 12, because wickedness is multiplied most men's love will grow cold, speaking about the last days. So if our meeting together is meant to encourage each other and stir us up to love, verse 24 says that, then it is obvious why we must do this all the more as we see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's appearing. The threat against our faith and our love will increase as the day draws closer. The preciousness of close Christian relationships becomes obvious when we recognize what Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, that the days are evil. The preciousness of comforting, encouraging believers in our lives is understood most when we feel the cold pressing in. And this is partly why I feel it is so important 
that we see small groups flourish here at State Road. It is cold out there. And sometimes it's cold right here in these pews. And again in Matthew 24, 12 through 13, Jesus said, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, and those who persevere to the end will be saved. The love of many will grow cold, he said. And in our text for this morning, we're told not to neglect meeting together because that is the place where we will feel spurred on to love and good works. Staying warm in this cold, fallen world calls for intentional striving. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love, that is how to keep one another from becoming cold, and to good works, which is the expression of love. So we see how critically important it is for each of us personally as Jesus followers that we heed this command not to neglect meeting together in this way for mutual encouragement and watch care. I, I, uh, I've shared this uh, illustration in the past, but when I was a police officer in Vermont, which is like the banana belt compared to Aristic County, but they do have winter down there too. It's not quite as bad, but <laughs> it does get cold. We had to receive cold weather training. They talked to us about hypothermia, and we've talked about this before. But again, I'm so um, impressed with this idea of there can be such a thing as spiritual hypothermia. It's cold out there. And what's needed if you begin to suffer from hypothermia, especially in a wilderness setting, is close body contact. you got to get close with other people to keep warm, especially if you don't have another heat source. And so I like that picture in my mind. That's not what the Bible says exactly, but that's my illustration to illustrate the truth of what the Bible is saying, is that in this cold world, you need close body contact with the body of Christ to stay warm. It's like if you've ever had in a fireplace a bed of coals. You take one coal, of even the biggest, brightest one in the bunch, and you set it aside from the rest of the coals, it'll go black and die out because it's not in with the bunch of coals. You take that blackened coal that's beginning to go out and you stick it back in the embers and it turns cherry red again. This, again, is a helpful illustration. You were not designed by your God to thrive in isolation. And one of the, when we're talking about striving, pulling at the oars, moving in a way that's contrary to the prevailing current, the ruinous current, it is a violent act <laughs> to sign up for a small group. It is an act of striving to do that. And I say this as an avowed introvert. Uh, I, we started this whole series on being one another people by saying that what we're talking about has nothing to do with human personality traits. It's one of the important things I need to recognize as an introverted person. Introverts, uh, I love people. It's like playing soccer. I like playing soccer, but it wears me out. I get tired, and I need to rest in isolation. Uh, if I do people for a long time, I love you people, but I'm not going to recharge by more time with people. I need to sometimes strategically be alone. That's just how I'm designed. That's a personality trait. That's not right or wrong. That's just who I am. But I do need to recognize that all of these things have a sinful arc, right? I can sinfully say, I really can't people anymore, when really I can and should. <laughs> and I need to recognize that this part of what's pulling at my heart is pulling me away from what's best for me. 
I need to be part of a small group of believers. I need to say yes to Tim Westcott when he says sign up for this thing for two years. And I would have missed out on so many blessings if I had said no. And one of the things is that the day really is drawing near. I believe Jesus is coming back, and I believe it soon. I believe that the signs of the times are all pointing to the possibility, maybe even today, guys. This is an amazing thought for me. I love the thought that maybe this is the last sermon that will ever be held at State Road Advent Christian Church. And that this time next week will be in glory. What a wonderful thought that is. But we are still in the midst of these days. And in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a question posed in the midst of that verse, those verses in 1 Peter 3.11. It says, In light of these things, what sort of people ought you to be? In light of the fact that this is coming, how should you be living out your days under the sun? What difference should it make? Uh, we, we live here in Aroostook County, and my goodness, it's getting cold in the morning. Yesterday morning, there was frost on the roof. I've already seen my neighbors have switched over. They've put the snowblower back on their tractor unit. It's happening, guys. I stopped to get my vehicle inspected the other day, and uh, the mechanic said, hey, you want snow tires, you better get started, because there's going to be a rush. Guys, winter is happening. It's coming. And because it's coming, all of Aroostook County is getting ready. People are stacking wood. They're loading pallets of pellets into their garages. <laughs> it's happening. We say Jesus is coming back. We say winter is coming. And we do something about it. Things change because we believe it's true. Is the fact that Jesus is coming back, is that reflected in the way I'm spending my days and my time? That's the spirit behind the question here. What difference does this make in how we live our lives when we believe Jesus is coming back? Take Lot and Rahab, for example. Lot was warned that the city of Sodom was going to be destroyed for its wickedness, so he warned the men to whom his daughters were engaged that God's wrath was coming. But the Bible says they laughed at him and thought he was joking. And when they wouldn't listen, he fled the city with his family. Rahab believed that a day of destruction was coming to Jericho. So we're told in the scriptures that she gathered her family into the safety of her apartment and she hung a scarlet cord from her window according to her arrangement with the spies that she had hidden. And we see there that they believed what they believed about a coming day found practical expression in the way that they lived, in their relationships, and what they did with their time. Rahab didn't start to remodel her bathroom, <laughs> the walls of Jericho, right? 
This wasn't happening. What sort of people did they become when they were warned? Their belief in that coming day radically changed the way they spent their days. And in both instances, they obeyed instructions and shepherded others to safety. But the most famous example of such a scenario in all our Bibles has to be that of Noah. The story of Noah has some really eerie parallels to the days we're living in. In Luke 17, we read this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Guys, we've been warned about a coming day. Events as yet unseen. And there is a great building project going on. Jesus said, I will build my church. And there is a place of refuge that has been constructed for us in this day. And it is the body of Christ. It is the church. And I believe that one of the things that uh, will mark the life of somebody who has really seen the fullness of what Jesus is saying, what the Bible says here, is that they will seek out a small group of believers as a necessary thing. Again, like I said several Sundays ago, like somebody who looks for fire in the cold, that in order to persevere to the end, we need a group of believers around us. This is one of God's gifts of grace to us to help us persevere to the end. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, This idea here, and I'll just close with this idea talks about the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming back. And then he finishes by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Get together with one another and tell each other to hold on. This is real. This is happening. Encourage one another to stay true to the words of God. Encourage one another with the promises of God. Encourage one another, support one another in pulling against the prevailing wind that's threatening to pull us all away from where we want to go in Christ. And again, it requires a great deal of humility to say, I can't, I'm not a self-help project. I need others to build me up, to encourage me, to help me pull against these currents. And I think we all do. And so I really want to encourage you, between now and um, when small groups kind of start off in October, some have started already. I think Bill and Deb Raymond's is meeting, they're going through Ephesians. Tuesday morning group. And, uh, and by the way, if some of those groups get really big, uh, we'll just find other groups. I promise. We'll make it happen for sure. So sign up with generosity. Fill them right up. We've already got one that filled up. It's great. And we'll uh, keep making more groups. So just let me know, okay? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way you have provided for us. And Father, we know that... Uh, we are, com- God, Jesus said that no one who you have given to him has been lost. Father, we know that we're secure in Christ. But Father, one of, the, one of the things that you will lay on the heart of all those who have passed from death to life is a, a burden, a desire 
to be known and to know others, to consider others, and to put ourselves in a place where we'll be considered and spurred on. And Father, we do need one another, just like coals need to be together to stay red hot. Father, we need to, in our effort to stay warm in the midst of these cold days, we need to be in close contact with one another. Father, coming out of the past two years with the pandemic, we certainly felt an unprecedented challenge to our commitment to being a one another people. Uh, we in our hearts saw the limits of what can be achieved through living out the Christian life in isolation from one another. Uh, one of the great benefits of the pandemic was opening my eyes to the necessity of this to the necessity of being together and to sharing life and sharing one another's burdens, and that there is great spiritual danger in isolation from one another. And so, Father, I thank you for your repeated warnings in Scripture for us not to drift off or to live an aimless life, but to enter into a life of striving. Father, your, your life, the life you've called us to, God, is one where Jesus has shouldered the burden of all of our sin. We no longer have to earn anything from you. And now, God, we are free to do what we want, and you've given us new desires, new passions. Father, give us a love for one another. God, I pray that this idea of being together would not become a to-do list item. God, our desire is not to turn church into a religious treadmill. where We're out of breath and exhausted and convicted about things. God, your burden is light. Father, lead us along by our desires into being together. God, give us a love for one another. Give us a desire to seek this out and to be a blessing and a help to one another, even as we are blessed and helped. And Father, I pray that you would cause wonderful things to flourish here in the midst of our fellowship as we respond in obedience to this command to be together. In Jesus' name, amen.